0: I want you to think about a date in history with me for a moment. The year is 1563. And in Heidelberg, Germany, people are writing, groups of people writing a very important document that would become known as something named for the city of Heidelberg, a Heidelberg Catechism. Now, Heidelberg Catechism, like other catechisms, were documents meant to instruct and to aim with that instruction at the youngest of God's image bearers that we would grow in understanding doctrine and truth. In 1563, this Heidelberg Catechism was produced in Heidelberg, Germany, and the questions and answers have become among the most widely loved and read catechisms from the Reformation era. The first two questions are especially interesting to me for this morning's purposes. Question number one What is your only comfort in life and in death? Question two, What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Question one, What is your only comfort in life and in death? What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Question two, The answers are so lovely. I think among the many favorite things you could say outside the Bible that you enjoy in the world, these are among my favorite statements. Uh, here in these first two catechism questions. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer. That I am not my own, but belong both body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's my comfort in, in life and in death. Now the catechism answer is a little bit longer than that. That's the opening answers, uh, opening sentence to the answer. It continues. He, my faithful Savior, has Christ by His Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Now that's an answer. Now that's a long answer. That's a mouthful. And the second answer, to, the answer to question two, much shorter. Question two was, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Two, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Three, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. So that is what's to know in order to live in the joy of the comfort that we belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ. Psalm 5 helps us here. Psalm 5 confronts us with the problem of our misery and sin. And Psalm 5 holds out for us the rescuing grace of God that delivers the sinner. And so therefore, Psalm 5 is right in the same vein of thinking as those two important questions from the 1500s. Though Psalm 5, of course, is thousands of years old. King David writes this psalm. He is surrounded by various circumstances and enemies There is no detailed historical setting in the superscription of the psalm other than it's the psalm of David and to the choir master for the flutes. So it's a psalm to be known and performed, a psalm to be enjoyed corporately, that the truth of our sin and God's delivering grace would be believed. Martin Luther in the 1500s called psalms a mini Bible. This book, a mini Bible, why would Luther say that the book of psalms is like a small scripture in itself? And the reason for that, Luther believed rightly that the Psalms teach us in those songs what the Bible teaches outside the book of Psalms. Such as, what is true about God? What is true about our sinful condition? What is true about His rescuing grace and power? The Bible teaches those things. Psalms teaches those things specifically. We will see evidence this morning of why Luther would say that the Psalms, in its its, uh, brevity and song, captures the same kinds of doctrinal truths taught elsewhere in Scripture. Psalms is indeed a mini-Bible. Let's look together at David's request to be heard in prayer. Verses 1-3 to go together as David's request that God hear him. This is a poetic depiction of David's heart. He doesn't just say, Lord, hear my prayer. You get three verses of him saying, Lord, hear my prayer. That's such the kind of thing the psalmists do. They love parallelisms. They love to repeat their lines. He says, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. These opening three verses are that God would hear David's words and even David's groaning. Now a groan, a groan doesn't have to sound like words, right? If you were ever groaning near someone and they said to you, What did you say? And you're like, Well, I didn't say anything. Just sort of, just sort of groaned. It just sort of came out, it was inarticulate. I think what's interesting to note about verses one to three is that David has words he can pray, but also inarticulate groans that arise from the depths of his soul that might be difficult to put words to. And what I want you to realize is while nobody else in the room might not be able to may be able to interpret your sighs and your groanings, nothing is lost on the Lord of heaven and earth. And this is really good news. He hears all of our words and can discern all of our hearts groanings because sometimes you don't know what to say. Sometimes you're not sure what words to offer to the Lord and the Lord is not closed to his people. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. My King and my God. I love that a king wrote this. Because in verse 2, David knows not only that that he is king, he's not the highest king there is. David has a king. David is king over all the land of Israel. Endowed with great authority and honor and influence among the people of Israel. But David says, you, O God, are my king. God's authority is greater than David's. God's ways and wisdom and words higher than David's. David knows something, and that is that God reigns supreme over the greatest of earthly kings. And in Psalm chapter 2, the psalmist was saying, Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. King David does this in in chapter 5 of the Psalms. King David recognizes the Lord should be served with fear and loved with worship. My King and my God, for to you do I pray. David has a higher King. Friend, we must recognize what King David so clearly knew, and that is there is One who reigns supreme in all the earth, and it is the Maker of heaven and earth. And David says, He is my King and my God. And that's not to take away... That he would be the king and God of someone else. It's just that God is great enough. And mighty enough. For an individual to say my king and my God. And that not take away that truth for anyone else who knows God. My king and my God for to you do I pray. David's confidence in verse 3 is clear. Oh Lord in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The rhythm of Israel's life was fascinating in their sacrificial offerings and system of sacrifices. They would go, the priests would, in the morning and offer, and they would offer in the evening. And this morning-evening ritual seemed to mark or frame the importance of one's day set apart to know and to worship God. Because our days are framed by morning and evening. Here we are in the morning, and Lord willing, evening will come. In the morning you hear my voice. David's attention isn't the kind of thing where he comes later in the day and then thinks, I should have a thought about God or a thought about His Word. David is like the blessed man of Psalm 1. In verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so as David thinks upon God, David prays and in the morning offers himself again to God. I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. This was in the days, of course, before Christ. Christ is the finished sacrifice. Before the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, these animals are offered at the temple. David is in the days before the temple. We're at the tabernacle, wherever it was set up at the time. And when David brings the ark to Jerusalem, that sets apart Jerusalem as the city where the temple will one day be under his son Solomon. David is preparing, if you will, something outward to demonstrate his inward devotion to the Lord. And this starts early. In verses 4 to 6, David knows something about God. This is where we can look at some of what this psalm contributes in what we know of God's nature. What we know of God's character from the word. You, he says in verses 4 to 6, are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. In verses 4-6, through we see the rejection of the wicked. David knows that God is holy. Righteous. In God is light. 1 John 1-5 There is no darkness in God at all. Those are metaphors. In John's writing in 1 John 1, 1.5. To say to us that God is pure. And God is set apart and holy. He is incorruptible. And dwells in unapproachable glory. And might and righteousness. There is none like God in all of creation. He says you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Important to recognize here is the verb delights. Sinners have delight in wickedness. If people didn't see sin as appealing and pleasurable, they wouldn't pursue it. There is a delight in sin that draws the wicked. God is not like that. His view of evil, his understanding of sin, his relationship to the wicked is as it ought to be. While sinners demonstrate their corruption, that they delight in wickedness, God is not corrupt. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. If God delighted in wickedness, he would have darkness in him and not be pure light. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. David no doubt has in mind the truth that they approach the Lord at the tabernacle and later at the temple when God is approached by those who have been set apart as holy. Those who come to know God and through these mediating sacrifices are received unto God. But those who live in rebellion against God ought not flagrantly approach. They would endanger their very lives to recognize that God is righteous and that they have not sought God as their refuge. Instead, instead, they have continued to go their own way. They've thought that they are God of their lives and they'll call the shots on things. And here we are told evil may not dwell with you, which is to indict all image bearers in a fallen world. How will we dwell with God if evil may not dwell with God? In verse five, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Verse five is strong language. This, this psalm doesn't come with a warning, but I, I, I would submit to you that this very language is very counter-cultural in the way people would think about a one and holy God. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, you hate all evildoers. This language about not stand and hate, and in verse 6, abhor, at the end of verse 6, you abhor the bloodthirsty. This is to say those who turn against God have positioned themselves in, in the light of His judgment. They have turned against God and so therefore will reap what their sins and corruption have sown. That is what it will mean. This is a covenant statement. While God would show covenant love toward his people, there is rejection for those who refuse the Lord. The boastful shall not stand. Evildoers will be rejected. In verse 6, destruction for those who speak lies. Compared to all the sins that somebody might commit, Deception with one's words might seem among the the least concerning, considering what capacity for evil and manifest wickedness is there. But sin is serious before the Lord. Sin matters. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. What should we know about verses 4-6? to That the wicked shall not stand before a holy God. This, my friends, is a problem because the Bible recognizes we have all done what is sinful. We are not those who will be found pure and righteous while God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's not true of anybody on this earth. In them is light and no darkness at all. No, that's not the case. The Bible's evaluation of our hearts is helping us to realize that God is holy and exalted, worthy of all praise, to be king and God over all creation, and that we are those who have delighted in sin, delighted in wickedness, who have acted boastfully, who have done what is evil, who have spoken untruth, who have acted, if not outwardly, at least inwardly, with a bloodthirst. Well, what shall we do? For we are not innocent. In verses 7 and 8, the psalmist David speaks here and provides for us the remedy. And we need that remedy. I'm glad the psalm did not end with verse 6. Verse 6 tells us this problem. David himself is not exempt from this problem. Just read First and Second Samuel. It's not as if David is one in whom there is light and no darkness at all. In verses 7 and 8, but I... Through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. How is it, we must ask, that a sinner like David will approach God? By the steadfast love and mercy of God. That is the answer. Your translation may say steadfast love or his, the, his great mercy. Something like that is right on in verse 7. David says, I'm coming to your house. On what grounds? What will be the grounds that any sinner ever approaches God? The answer must be crystal clear in our minds because we are surrounded by people in 2023 and all the way through human history behind us who believe that maybe on that last day I will be found to be good enough. Maybe when I stand before God, my niceties would outweigh whatever... Failings and flaws were obvious to me and others. Maybe in the end, it will all shake out well for me. In verses 7 and 8, David is not banking his hope in God on any internal righteousness. Neither must we. Let's not be deluded here. None of us would ever do enough or demonstrate enough righteousness that would cover our sins. David knows my only hope is the abundant love of God. And in verse 7, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple. What's that posture to communicate? I will bow down. Well, you see, David is a king, and kings don't bow to anybody unless, unless David is in the presence of a greater authority. Here is King David saying, I bow down to you, my king and God. David knows who God is. And David's hope is in God's steadfast love. And David's conviction is, I will come to your holy temple in the fear of you. And this doesn't mean to just tremble before God. It means a reverence for God. To take God seriously. If I could make a plea with you at the moment, and apply this this language about verse 7, you and I need to take our hearts before God and the teachings about God from the Scriptures with an utmost seriousness, more seriously than we take anything else in all creation. Because these things touch on eternal matters. And there's nothing more relevant than what lasts forever. There's nothing more daily significant than what has eternal significance. This here in verse 7 about coming to the Lord's house and the fear of Him is to say that in David's heart he wants to reverence God, exalt God, know God as God and come to Him as the one being God that is greater than David the King. This earthly sanctuary, this house, this temple, even the tabernacle was on occasions called the temple or house of the Lord before the permanent one built by Solomon. David says, how can I approach you? If you're holy and righteous and I'm unholy and unrighteous, then it will be by mercy. That is the gospel. Psalm 5 contains the good news of the gospel. The human dilemma that all of us are in and the surpassing abundance of God's love shown toward the wicked. He says in verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. You know what the people who reverence God wants? The people who reverence God, who love God, who come to know God, they want the words and ways to God, of God to be their words and ways. They want their life conformed to something else. This person says, lead me, O Lord. I'm not here to follow my heart. That's not going to lead me anywhere, good. You don't, you, know, you don't delight in wickedness like sinners do, O God. So my heart, that can't be what I base my leading and path on. I need you to lead me, Lord. If God is righteous and His Word is true, then you can trust the wisdom of God to lead through His Word. Lead me, O Lord, in Your righteousness because of my enemies. Make Your way straight before me. David recognizes in verse 8 the presence of enemies. We don't know what they're up to. They could be up to all manner of mischief. None of it would be good. All of it would be perceived as some kind of threat to David. And in verse 8, in light of that, David doesn't want to be derailed. Don't you realize we're surrounded by things to pull at your focus? In life, we are surrounded by all sorts of things that will serve as spiritual distractions through our days and weeks together. David is surrounded by things like that. He needs to be led by the Lord that the way before him would be made straight. He doesn't want it to be filled with his own distractions and obstacles and encumbrances. His hope is that the Lord who does not delight in wickedness, will see David's plight, hear the answer to his prayer, and lead him and make his way straight. And why does David pray like that? Because David loves God. David doesn't come to the temple and then go live however he wants. He goes to the temple to once again renew and commit to the Lord his God who is king over all the earth. David does not have the authority. God does. David does not have the jurisdiction God does. David comes to worship God and then prays to be led by God in all ways. In verses 9 and 10, what will be the end for God's enemies? It tells us in verses 9 and 10, there's a call for judgment. And David knows that God is righteous. And that will mean the evildoers will not have the last word. They should tremble before the God whose ways they have spurned and whose righteousness they have presented an affront to. Because they themselves deserve judgment. In verses 9 and 10, here's what they're like. David says, for there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Where is the deepest problem for the wicked? The deepest problem for the sinners, friends, is not someone else outside of you. Your greatest dilemma and deepest concerning condition is not something merely external, but within yourself. There is no truth in their mouth. Why does Disinformat- not so much disinformation as untruth, deception come from their mouth. What comes from their mouth comes from their heart. Their words arise from their inmost self. The reasons then that the words coming on the outside are wrong is because of the inside they are wrong. Their throat is an open grave. That's an image for you. No one one wants to think about an open grave. We're talking about a grave after the service. We're talking about in the ancient world as bodies might be dealt with in graves and just left open for all the processes that were post-mortem to take place. An open grave would turn out to be a ghastly sight. This here... Is saying their throat is an open grave. What it represents, the, let's call it the stench of their words, the untruth and distortion within them that's coming out in the way they conduct themselves, they flatter with their tongue. They're not right in their words because they're not right in their hearts. This is the human dilemma. If the Bible has told us that our problem is a heart problem, then who is it that can change the heart? There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And we know that this is not just for David's enemies in his day. This language is actually used by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 when he tries to describe what the universal condition of mankind is like apart from God's grace. And Paul quotes in Romans 3.13 Psalm 5.9 that this psalm provides not just an indictment of David's enemies but it shows at an illustrative level what's true for all sinners apart from God. Mark Jones in his book Knowing Sin says sin is the soul's disease. Blinding the mind, hardening the heart, disordering the will, stealing strength, and dampening the affections. The reason mankind does not long for God as we ought, worship God as we ought, and loves and pursues sin as people do with their hardened heart and blinded minds, the root cause is sin. It is the soul's disease. Mark Jones is right. And I wonder if you realize that malady within you. I wonder if you can discern that indeed, my thoughts toward God, my love for His Word, my affections toward what is good and wise are not what they ought to be, and the problem is deeply rooted within me. How is it that the soul's disease can be cured? It tells us here in verse 10, what would come If no cure would be found, David calls for God's righteous judgment to be demonstrated. Make them bear their guilt, O God. There is real guilt that those sinners and enemies have. David is not projecting upon them something they haven't already done. Instead, they have real sin that has resulted in real guilt that is worthy of real judgment. Let them fall by their own counsels. See, these are the people like Psalm 1, the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, though there are plenty who do walk in the counsel of the wicked. And the counsel of the wicked will be their very undoing. Living against the Lord is the most self-destructive thing you can do. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Your very sins in pursuit of rebellion form a very snare in your life in line with the soul's disease you have. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. You see, our problem is not a small problem. No one with a right view of their heart would say, well, I don't really see that my relationship toward God, the maker of heaven and earth, is really in that kind of danger. Because when I think about really what others do and the way others live, I think I'm doing pretty well in in comparison. This, This psalmist doesn't want you to look at your life in comparison to another life, but consider your heart before the God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all. None of us will stand before one another on that last day. You will stand before the God who is holy, holy, holy. And because of the abundance of their transgressions, he says, cast them out for they have rebelled against you. Those who rebel against God, that sowing will lead to a reaping of rejection by God on that last day. David knows God is just. He knows God is righteous and holy. God cannot be bribed or manipulated. He cannot be swindled. And nothing will over will be uh, neglected by him. Nor will he overlook anything. Notice here the language of abundance. The abundance of their transgressions. It's the same language that we saw earlier in chapter 5. And in verse 7. I through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. Abundance in In both cases is the same word and the content differs. Abundance of transgressions, abundance of steadfast love. What I want you to know is that the latter is the remedy for the former. Verse 10 talks about the abundance of transgressions. Their many sins are great. What you need then is abundant mercy. If we have an abundance of transgressions, and we do, then we need a redeemer whose abundance of love can cover them all. And that is what we have in Christ. If their sins are great, what they need is mercy that is greater. If their bondage is strong, what they need is grace that is stronger. The rescuing grace of God is the answer to the abundance of our transgressions. Yes, our sins are great, but His mercy is not weak. His mercy is not small. His mercy is greater than all of our transgressions. David knows this. Why would they refuse the Lord, who is the source of their peace and life and joy that they've been made to know and see? Why should they love their wickedness one moment longer? They should turn. They should turn and they should do what in verses 11 and 12 is the call for believers to remember that we have done in Christ. Verses 11 and 12 is the call to rejoice. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. This is a paradox. Where do we go for refuge from the judgment of God? We go to God. God is the refuge from his righteous judgment. And that is because he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is such good news. There's nothing better than this news. In verse 11, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. You see, the wicked who are delighting in their sins, they can't delight in God. Their love is wrapped up in their rebellion. But if they would turn, come to Christ, turn to the living God, who is a refuge for all who come to him, they will find Joy in Him that surpasses the fleeting, bankrupt pleasures of sin in this world. They will come to know God for whom they were made and in whom are pleasures forevermore and delights surpassing the lies of this age. Let them ever sing for joy. You see, the believer is so enraptured by their joy and peace in God, they want to not only express it, but they burst forth in song to proclaim it because God's greatness is so great, His mercy so deep. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. We can contrast what the believer does with what the wicked does. The wicked do not love the name of God. To love His name there is to represent His character in ways. To come to understand something of God that is true because His Word makes it known. And then in this world, we find the truth of God's Word being a living water well in light of all the poisonous wells around. And we can receive the goodness of the truth of God's Word to know what God is like and that that causes our, our souls to rejoice and exult in God. It means to find joy in and confidence in. Those who love your name, may they do that, David says. And I wonder if you love God's name. And I don't just mean because you say you do. I mean that when you think about what God has done, and when you think about your sins born on the tree by the Lord Jesus 2,000 years ago, and when you think about the empty tomb and the ascended King of heaven and earth, and the goodness of mercy in which we awoke this morning, your heart rejoices in this because you know God has not treated you according to how your sins have deserved. The abundance of sin had been met with abundance of mercy. You love that, and you don't ever want to get over it. John Gill says, the believer loves the Lord himself because of the perfections of his nature, the work of his hands, what he's done for them. They love all that they know of him. They love him in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every name he goes by, all that he's made himself known by, the believer loves, admires, and adores. His attributes and perfections displayed by creation and providence and especially in redemption by Jesus Christ. Gil is right. The believer loves the name of God for those reasons. Because the name of God is our eternal refuge. There is a name for sinners to be saved. The name of Christ, friends. The name of Christ. He is the saving one. His name is the saving name. You might not know Christ this morning. In fact, you might look in the light of Psalm 5 and you would think, my heart is in trouble. Because I would recognize that in view of a righteous and holy God, I need redemption And I would be rightly condemned because of my guilt and sin. Friend, our transgressions are abundant. But I want you to know the gospel. I want you to know the good news of Jesus whose mercy is coming for you. Just receive Christ. Find refuge in God. Turn from your sin. Learn what it is to follow Christ as a disciple. Make Christ your refuge. He says here in verse 12, in the last part of our passage this morning, For you bless The righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Imagery that may pick up chapter 3.3 when David says, You, O Lord, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. That's such an important metaphor for David. He loves thinking of the protecting, powerful person of God. Here he says in verse 12, You cover him with favor as with a shield. God is with us. I think this even speaks to the same answer of Catechism Question 1 from the Heidelberg Catechism. We were told in that answer that God watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. And in all things, he must work them together for my salvation. Indeed, God is a shield for his people then. Indeed, he blesses his righteous. Righteous though. You know, it's hard not to get hung up on that word. It's like righteous. How? How is it that anybody can be called the righteous? How is it that anyone is saved if the wicked cannot abide in the presence of God? The righteous here, and I need you to hear very carefully what I'm about to say. The righteous here, they are not those who are righteous because they've earned it. They are not those who are righteous because they deserve it. They are not those who are righteous because they have achieved it. They could never be good enough or strong enough or determined enough. They are righteous because God is their refuge. In other words, the God who is righteous has become by faith their righteousness. The righteous are those who run to Christ as their refuge for Christ is, is the righteousness we need. We don't have a righteousness outside Christ. We have Christ. And therefore we have righteousness. And therefore we are His. And therefore we are blessed. And therefore we have life eternal in Him. They are called righteous because God is their refuge. Oh, may God be our refuge and that we would know His abundant mercy covering our many sins. What a friend we have in Jesus. Let's pray.